Welcome to the DC Yoga Podcast. My name is Chris Parkinson. I'm your host for the next hour or so. Um, today we have uh, Kelly DiNardo in the studio. Uh, she is the owner of Past Tense Yoga in Mount Pleasant. Kelly has a lot of joy in her practice, and the studio was born from her vision for a welcoming, accessible community space where people come together and find that same joy as well as support for and growth in their own practice. Past Tense is a vinyasa-based studio, but the studio off also offers slow flow meditation, restorative yin, sound bath meditation, Pilates, foam rolling, prenatal, baby and me, kids yoga, and senior yoga. The studio has regular workshops and teacher trainings, including a foam rolling and yoga continuing ed module coming up in November. Off the mat, Kelly is the author of several books, including Living the Sutras, which offers a modern, accessible, and personal look at the ancient yoga philosophy and wisdom found in the Yoga Sutras. As a freelance journalist, she specializes in exploration, whether it's internally through yoga and meditation, physically through health and fitness, culturally and socially through profiles or the myriad ways travel brings all of that together. She has written for O, The Oprah Magazine, Martha Stewart Living, The New York Times, The Washington Post, National Geographic Traveler, AARP, and others. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so uh, have you always been a travel writer? I mean, is that, that's sort of like my dream job. That's why I it's, asked. It's kind of an amazing job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I actually started in entertainment writing. Um, I started at USA Weekend and USA Today and was there for a few years doing working in the purple section mm -hmm. of the paper. And I, I there's a lot I loved about my job, but um, I was looking for something different and I couldn't find it here in DC, the, the right kind of writing I wanted to be doing. And so I was young enough to think freelancing was the way to go. And um, I'm actually really glad I made the leap. And when I, when I left to freelance, I branched out. So still very much lifestyle writing, uh, a lot of health and fitness. Um, I did a lot of food for a while. I really like... Was um, that like going to restaurants and eating and then like talking uh, yes, about it? Really? Right. Also pretty cool. Yeah. What was the best restaurant you went to? Ever or in D.C.? Hmm. For, your, for your freelance writing Oh, gig. for writing... Hmm. Where you like, there were no words to describe how good the food is. How at this good, restaurant. how it is. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I've I've eaten at a lot of restaurants. <laughs> Narrowing it down would be <laughs> too unfair. Too yes, too unfair. And it's been a long time since I've done food writing. Mm -hmm. um, I've we um, my husband and I moved overseas, and we lived in Switzerland for three years, and that was when I really started doing more travel writing. Um, I had done a little bit of it before, um, but I really got more into it then. So, so you were so you were writing, and one day you you went to a yoga class, and you were like, "Oh, this is cool!" Or like, "How did how, <laughs> how did, did that happen? Yeah, how did that happen?" Yeah. Um, so I had this very on-again, off-again practice the way I think most people do. Um, and I was training for my first long-distance run. And I was working at USA Today at the time. They have this fantastic gym. And they had a weekly yoga class that I would go to. And I started going much more consistently because of the running. And I stayed for all the reasons you stay on the mat. And actually my practice was really instrumental in making the decision to leave and start freelancing. So when I left, I got this great advice from another writer who said, whatever you do, make sure you get out of the house every day mm -hmm. because it's very easy as a freelancer to 
not ever leave the house. So I was teaching step and sculpting classes. That's dating myself. How Where long were you teaching those? At Washington Sports Club. Yeah, yeah. very nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And my boss there, and I was studio hopping in my own practice. And my boss at the gym knew that and said, um, why don't you, we're doing this certification with Yoga Fit and we have people we can send. We have two spaces. Do you want to go? So I did, you know, their training with them and I started teaching at the gym, which was great because I was teaching at the gym and I was practicing at different studios and I got to see both sides of things. And um, so I was teaching and loved teaching and hadn't really ever thought about opening a studio and then it was probably 2008 or 9 and things started to go south for publishing a lot of the magazines I was writing for were having really heavy layoffs they were um, some of them were folding completely Um, they were trimming budgets I lost a couple of my regular gigs and I started to just totally freak out that Mm -hmm. journalism was going I was not going to be able to be a journalist anymore and my husband then my boyfriend said well what would you do if you weren't a journalist and I said well I'd open a yoga studio and I have no idea where that came from it was like just popped into my head and I said it out loud I had never thought about it but then as soon as I started to think about it like it was just there in my brain for a while and I started to look at our neighborhood a little bit differently and mm-hmm. started to look at spaces and I mean I think probably within six months of that I opened wow past tense. so it happened really fast yeah that's really fast um do you remember do you remember who your teacher was when you were at USA Today taking yoga classes no I have no idea was it was but it was someone who came in every week it was the every same week part. yeah, yeah. um great do you, uh, so when they paid for you to go to your teacher training, Washington Sports Club? Yeah, that's great. And that that's was, that was like a three day weekend initial right. training kind of thing. It was like you would do for step or like something like that. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And then I, when did you do the 200 then the 200 um, hour one? So that's an interesting story. So it took a long time for me to do an official one. This was long enough ago that yoga Alliance used to let you put together essentially your own training. So I would do like a weekend intensive with different teachers all over. I mean, I would travel up to New York, which is where I grew up. So it was always like a nice excuse. Mm -hmm. And I would do these disparate trainings and then, um, so it would be, so they basically said, okay, as long as you get 200 hours, you send us the trainings that you've done. As long as it adds up to 200 right. hours, you get the teacher training. Right. And you had to f- fill very specific categories. Categories, right. sure. And so that was, that was, they changed those rules, I want to say 2009 or 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, and I looked for a few different 200-hour trainings. I wanted to do one officially. I ended up doing the one at past tense. Um, two, three years ago was when I finally did it. And mm-hmm. I'm actually still looking to do one, either to do another 200 or to do a 500 hour. Um, oh, well, you know, you're, you're just in time. Uh, my own 200 hour teacher training is coming up this January. Of oh. this, so if you're interested, okay. <laughs> <laughs> is it a, is it a, like a six month 
It's a uh, it's a January to May. Okay. So we do five months. Okay. Like we um we kind of looked at all the programs out there. Me and uh, do you know Julia Romano by any chance? I don't. She taught for a long time at Yoga District. Okay. And ran the teacher trainings there. Was yeah. one of the people who did the teacher trainings there. Um, now she's out kind of on her own in Baltimore. Uh, but we kind of looked at all the ones out there, and we we thought that the you know the two or three week ones were like ridiculously too short. And yeah. The ones that were eight or nine months were just too long for most people to sustain right. their attention. So we we boiled it down to that, just two weekends a month. Yeah. Um, and uh, this will be our third year, so yep. we're actually it's actually really fun to do. Yeah. But really draining, but really fun. Right. <laughs> and that that's sort of how we do it. I I think it's about five months as well, and then we have a they have to do a weekly class in between the weekends. Um, mm-hmm. Which is so when you nice. so when you opened your yoga studio, you weren't like teaching every class. You were oh, just oh, good lord, no. Yeah, you were just um, no. We so I had a um, I had a studio a friend who was basically a studio manager, and we before I opened, we went around town and took classes with anyone we heard was good, mm-hmm. and we held auditions, and um, we hired we hired we hired a ton of people. I mean, I think now. Now I probably have close to, between studio assistants and teachers, there's probably about 40 people on staff. Nice. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And part of the intention always, part of why I didn't teach all the classes is that in a lot of ways, past tense is a very selfish endeavor. I built the yoga studio I wanted to practice at. And so I wanted teachers who are way better than I am. And um, the other piece of it, was that I really wanted to have an eclectic staff. I didn't want to be a studio where everyone's teaching the same format or the same style or leading up to the same peak pose every month. I, what I need on a Sunday is gonna be different than what I need on a Thursday. And with any luck, if I'm growing in my practice, different than what I need in six months. And so I wanted there to be a pretty broad interpretation um, or approach a, a lot of different ways to approach it and when did you guys first open we opened in 2009, 2009. so we are almost 10 years old that's awesome congratulations yeah. thanks that's really cool yeah um and when you first opened how did you sort of and i guess we can talk about this maybe a little bit later on how yeah. did you set the schedule were you like i'm gonna have just like vinyasa classes or gonna have yin classes and you talked a little bit about it already but how did you decide okay we're gonna do what, these what types is, of, yeah these yeah. types of classes um, so I, I looked at what other studios were doing for sure. And not just here in DC, but, um, I looked at studio schedules all over the country. And then I thought again, because I had never like worked in a studio before. I had never even taught in a studio before I'd always been mm-hmm. teaching in gyms. So, um, in some ways I was naive to what it was. And in some ways that was really good because I didn't feel like I had to do anything a particular way. Um, and so, you know, I looked at what I wanted in classes too. So, and we started, we started small with our schedule. Um, like just had, one morning class, two evening classes, that type of thing. Yeah. So we, yes, exactly. We had one morning class. We had, um, probably two evening classes a night and then our, Saturday and Sunday schedule is pretty much the same as it was. I mean, the formats might have changed, but that number of classes has mm-hmm. been pretty consistent. And then and then we added things. We added lunch classes. We added Pilates. Um, we 
have always had, I think we've almost always had restorative, but kind of where they've been on the schedule or how that's looked has changed a mm-hmm. little bit. We've, we have a lot of beginner classes on the schedule. I think we have four right now. Are those pretty, pretty regularly attended? Yeah, pretty popular? Yes. It's amazing, isn't it? It is. And, you know, we have people who go, they've been going for years. They're not beginners anymore, but yeah. they, they still love that. And You'd I, be surprised. I've talked to a lot of studio owners at this point who, um, who always say that the basics class, the yoga fundamentals class is mm-hmm. one of their most popular classes. And it always it kind of boggles my mind because when you look at a lot of the schedules, all you see is like rocket, you right. see power yoga level three. And right. there's so many advanced classes when it seems like a lot of people just want a basics class. They want basics. Yeah. right? And we don't have a ton. Um, I think we probably only have two or three, no, three or four level two classes. I mean, we mm-hmm. tend to be kind of that 1.5 intermediate for the most part. Um, but yeah, we probably have equal number beginner classes as we do our level two. Mm-hmm. When did, at what point did you start adding things that weren't yoga, like Pilates yeah, or like foam rolling? That's a good or... question. So foam rolling we've had for about four or five years now. Um, Pilates, Pilates we probably added after the first year. Um, that was a pretty quick addition. Kids classes and prenatal probably came after about year two. Mm-hmm. Um, Mount Pleasant is such a great family neighborhood and the intention was always to serve the entire community or as much of the community was interested. Right. And so, um, yeah, so we added prenatal and kids. We've tried yoga in Spanish a handful of times yeah. and it just hasn't, hasn't taken off yet. Hasn't taken off yet. 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 Exactly. <laughs> we'll um, yeah. One of the things uh, that always interests me is, uh, I find a most yoga studios have to at some point or another offer more than just yoga to bring in more people um, to kind of serve, like you said, the community and what the community wants. Like a pure just yoga yoga studio. I don't even know. I think we could have stayed a pure yoga studio. I I do. And we get people who come in, people who come in for foam rolling or for, and, and our foam rolling class is foam rolling and yoga, right? So we're using the the tune-up balls or the foam roller as another prop in your practice. But the people who tend to come to that don't come to our regular gotcha. yoga classes. Yeah. And I think... Um, so I think we could have been a pure yoga studio, but I think, again, there are different ways... I, I think these are very complementary practices. Yeah. I, and so I teach my specialties are yoga and Pilates. Yeah. Um, and I, I often try to get my Pilates students to come to yoga and they're like, no, I won't. And I try to get my yoga students to come to Pilates and they're like, no, I won't. And, and I just think to myself, they're, they're basically the same thing. Right. Like it's just, it's just controlled body movement, body right. weight movement. Right. There, there's really no difference. No. <laughs> and people, people just are like, no. I'm sticking to my thing. Right. People definitely <laughs> get into their routine. Yeah. Yes. Um, so with your sort of multidisciplinary background, um, teaching all the different stuff, do you still, are you just practicing yoga right now yourself or are you still like a runner? Are you still a, I'm still a runner. Still a runner. I am. And I, I lift weights and I believe in a very holistic, um, physical practice mm-hmm. and, I would say yoga for me has gone from being 
it's definitely shifted for me to being just a physical practice to being much more spiritual practice. Yeah. As I think anybody who spends a lot of time around yoga ends up doing. Yes. Yeah. I think or you so. give it up pretty quick. Yes. Um, so I don't imagine in your three day training with the Washington sports club that you got into a whole bunch of philosophy about yoga. How did no, that happen? No, we did not. I don't think we covered any <laughs> philosophy. So that was something I had done through some of the other trainings that I did. Um, I did a great one. There was a mix of philosophy and movement with Ralph Gates at, at downward dog mm-hmm. yoga. One of their, I think their Virginia locations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was just never anything I really prioritized or was really interested in other than that very sort of introductory glance at it all. And we've moved around a lot, even while I've had past tense. I've actually been managing it from afar mm-hmm. for seven, six or seven years. Um, and I live in Madison, Wisconsin right now. And my teacher there... Um, Amy Pierce-Hayden was the one who started to make the philosophy much more interesting to me. And you just started taking her classes or how did that happen? Oh, that's a funny story. Yes. (laughs) Um, So I started taking her classes. I studio hopped in Madison for a while as well. And then eventually, I don't know why it was like the one of the last places I went to was the one that was two blocks from my house, which is bizarre. And Amy was teaching there. Um, And so I started practicing there pretty consistently. Amy has since opened up her own studio in Madison, which I practice at there and one other studio. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so I started taking her classes and, and we later pieced out that my, she and my mom had been on the same flight from New York to Madison. And my mom had like yammered her ear off and said oh you should meet my daughter and my mom and then my mom got in the car when I picked her up at the airport and she said oh I met this woman she teaches yoga you guys should be friends right like (laughs) and I had this very unyogic thought where I was like oh my god this poor woman was just trapped with my mom on an (laughs) airplane for two hours I don't think so um but the universe had other ideas so like a year later I met Amy and we probably not even but we pieced it all together so so it's like a year later she was like oh yeah i remember this really wacky person on this flight one time and you're like that's my mom yes (laughs) no so it was (laughs) she said something to me that triggered something my mom had said and i was like oh my god did you happen to be on this plane and sit next to this grandmotherly lady who talked your year off Mm -hmm. about her family and you're like you're like uh we live in wisconsin which flight would that be right Um, so, uh, what, so tell me real quickly, is there a difference between the yoga you see being practiced in Wisconsin and the yoga being practiced here in DC in terms of like the style of classes or like what you do during the classes? Cause one of the things that interests me is sort of seeing if there is sort of like a Washington culture of yoga. Right. Um, like do we do anything different here than they do in say New York city or Madison right. or LA? Um, Madison really likes hot yoga which might be the fact that we live in Wisconsin and it's cold yeah. 10 months of the year. Um, that's not quite true or fair, but kind of. Um, they really like hot yoga a lot more than, than we do. But other than that, no. Um, so it's the same. So you have sun salutations, the warrior series, that type yeah. of thing. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. No, I think DC is particularly, uh, I, so what, when I 
my experience has been is that it's it's more of a, a power yoga type place, more of a you know Ashtanga influence type place yeah. because DC people tend to be really really type A and they're sort of like I want to be able to do handstands, I want to be able to do crow pose, I want right. to be able to do this. And I do um, think DC instructors are much more professional and polished than some of who I've practiced with in Madison, but that also might be because it's a college town. Yeah. Um, and it might also be because I think DC is type A. So even your yoga instructors are generally going to take things pretty seriously. That's right. Right. That's right. Um, and I've been, and actually, you know, I, w- I would just add to that, that I've actually been quite surprised since I started this podcast that many studio owners like yourself have actually a pretty wide ranging um, class schedule. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just like power yoga, power yoga, power yoga, right. like I assumed it would be. And that's like so fantastic to discover. Yeah. We have very little power yoga at past tense. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's not our students jam. Yeah. <laughs> so how did, so how did Amy, so how did, did she, does she like weave in these philosophy, philosophical concepts into her class when she teaches? Is that how you kind of discovered it? She always starts with a Dharma talk. And gotcha. that was really hard for me at first because I was like, come on, let's go, let's start moving. And, but she does them really beautifully and she's funny in them. I mean, I was telling somebody yesterday, she gave this whole Dharma talk about um, attachment um, and the kleshas and she was talking about tacos and how she had like gone to this one restaurant for tacos and she could never recreate that experience, but she was clinging Mm -hmm. to it. And I thought, what in God's name does do tacos have to do <laughs> with yoga? So she she does a really great job of putting it into like real conversational yeah. understanding, understandable terms instead of yoga speak. And you and so did you and so you kind of did you ask her one time you're like what do you where do you get all this stuff? Do you just coming out of your brain or like what? <laughs> She's like, very good. She she would bring books in, and so um, I actually had asked her to recommend. Um, some books on mm-hmm. the sutras and philosophy and my one my sad one little book has grown exponentially over how many life. copies of the sutras do you own at now like at least six. Oh, okay it's just still not a ton no. she would amy would come when we were writing the book she would come with this giant bag yeah. of books to my office yeah, I think I, I when I bought yours, I was I think I mentioned on a previous episode. Uh, after I bought yours, I'm up to ten. You're now up to ten. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, good. Yeah. yeah, I just keep. I, I don't know. I like. I'm always looking for different ways, different takes on it, and different different ways to approach it. Right? Yeah, right. Um, do you remember your first copy? Did you? Oh, it was. Um, it's the this uh, Swami. The Sachidananda one. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Those the Swami and his pink robe on the yes. front. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um. So what was sort of the inspiration then for doing this book, your yes. uh, Living the Sutras book? So um, it's kind of funny. I I got a stack of books from a publisher um, to consider for review or story ideas. And I was thumbing through them and I realized that two of the books were essentially the same. They had different covers on them and one of them had the word yoga in the title. And I flipped through the book and I was annoyed that the two books were essentially the same and that they had just put yoga on the title. And then I flipped through them and I realized that it had absolutely nothing to do with yoga as I had ever known or understood it. Mm-hmm. And I got 
very self-righteous and indignant and um, all judgy. Yeah, super judgy, <laughs> super obnoxious, super judgy. And I shoved the books in the corner of my office and I was just like, how dare anybody just use yoga to sell things? Because that has never happened in our culture. Right, never. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> and I stomped off to class not long after that, which is exactly how you want to go to class, right? Like in a grumpy mood and self-righteous. Mm-hmm. And Amy gave a Dharma talk and I was sitting there and I was like, oh, this is what a yoga book should be about. I was like, oh, this is what a yoga book should be about. And so I let the idea kind of percolate for a while. And Amy and I had gotten to be friends at this point. And I said to her over coffee one day, I was like, I have this idea. Do you, what do you think? Do you want to do this with me? And she, she was all in. It was, she'd been looking for uh, a sutra book for her she for her teacher training and mm. wasn't really thrilled with the options right like she wanted something that was a little bit more modern and we have journal prompts at the end of each commentary and that was something she really wants her students to make it personal to them mm-hmm. so that was very important to us right from the beginning so. yeah no i like the i like the way that it's um that it's laid out it is very accessible I don't know if you've ever read the. Um, there's another one uh, by uh, McTunda Styles, um, and it's there's. It, she doesn't even offer the Sanskrit. It literally is just the the English translation, Ooh, um, okay. and so you can read it. You could probably read it in, you know, two or three hours. Yeah. It's it's really simple and straightforward. Oh, I'll have and to like, look at that one. It's it's so good. I I love the sort of. Um, I love the the modern um, take on it, which you guys have adopted too. Yeah. Um, to kind of not include all of the commentary that's traditionally included and in all of that, um, and it's very straightforward and yeah. very approachable, which right. is I think the thank you. Yeah, which is well, which is one of the things that you know these these sutras. I mean, we don't know how old they are. We know the first ones were probably written down. We think around 200 AD right. or 200 ACE. What do they call it now? No, it's after the Common Era, before yeah. the Common. I don't even know. I what don't it know. Is. <laughs> one of those things. Um, the Common Era, yeah. Um, so we know that it's maybe 1800 years old. We also probably know that it predated that because this was just the first time it was written down. Right. Uh, and presumably, like just about every text that's out there, religious, historical, etc. Um, these oral traditions, when they're written down into um, the reason why they are oral traditions, is because they are molded by poets and by prophets and by people who speak them to the audience as as they see right fit um so to kind of think that we just have to read them the way that like they did in 200 you know 200 1800 years ago is sort right. of ridiculous it's right. always been you know up- updated to the newest to the know, newest the, yeah right well especially when i think sanskrit sentences to english sentences always feels like Yoda is talking to yeah. you, right? I mean, the, it's exactly right. they're backwards. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. So how did you, so did, so then this was, so did she use her own, like, did she just go through it and read the Sanskrit and provide her own, um, her own translation? Yeah. So the way we worked, so Amy would come over, um, once we got our book deal, Amy would come over to my office and the, the first thing we did was we went through all of the sutras and I said, don't, don't think about writing anything. I will write, just talk to me. Mm-hmm. Just tell me what you think this means. And she, she would just, I would ask her questions and it was like getting my PhD in the sutras, right? And she would say, so after we went through all of the sutras and I took these crazy notes, 
um, we went back through them a second time and pulled out like any points or things we wanted to really make. Mm-hmm. And then we started like sometimes when Amy would talk about whatever the suture was, we would think, okay, well we'll talk about tacos, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> With it. Um, but sometimes it was like, oh, well this is kind of like the cat in the hat or this is kind of like that study I read about um, with the flow state or something like that. So we brought in um, like pop culture examples. I'm pretty sure we're the only edition of the sutras that quotes Fight Club. Very um, nice. <laughs> I'm cool with all of that. Yeah. I've read about half of it. Uh-huh. I hope there are no references to Kardashians in the no, rest of it. No, <laughs> there are no Kardashian references. <laughs> That's the only thing I would have a problem with. <laughs> yeah, no, no Kardashians. Um, but and then we tried to tie it to what psychology and science has shown. I mean, one of the big things for me was I realized how ahead of their time these yogis were. I mean, they're talking about things that we now know from psychologists like the importance of gratitude and the habit loop and um the happiness advantage all of those things so yeah they tried to put as much of that into it as possible and then i would do a first round of once we kind of agreed with what we're doing i'd do the first round of writing and make amy translate all of the sutras (laughs) um not make her she but she didn't translate all this, all of the sutras. I'm assuming at this point she's a really big yoga dork, so she probably didn't mind. Yeah, she's a huge <laughs> yoga dork, which is what we love about her. Yes, exactly. Um, and then we would we would have these, um, and then Amy would go through and edit anything and like add to and any of the commentary, and I would look at her translations or anything she would say, and we would have these conversations that would go, Kelly, or I say Amy, that, that's too that's too yoga, that's too woo woo and yoga, like talk like a real person and she'd be like I'm not dumbing it down I'm not dumbing it down so we had this nice push-pull of um how do you make it accessible without Mm -hmm. dumbing down how important this is Mm -hmm. so um I think it ended up working really well yeah no it's it's a fantastic read I mean it's very like um it's very straightforward the sutras generally are one of the things that sometimes confuses a lot of people and myself included is how um sort of uh, complicated the commentaries can sometimes make something that's very simple yeah uh, so i think you guys did a good job of Thank not you. trying to not trying to talk about every possibility right yeah right yeah i mean i think we could go through and do this again and give totally new commentary to yeah. a lot of the maybe sure. not all of them but quite a few yeah i mean this is for the listeners who don't know what a sutra is a sutra is to put it in modern parlance a sound bite yeah Right. And so with a soundbite, you can interpret a soundbite in a, in a million different, different ways, ways because yeah. there's no context to it whatsoever, really. Right. Um, how did you deal? Because I know a lot of authors struggle with this, the, the sort of um, not incongruity, but there is a sort of lack of A to B to C um, in the original Sanskrit of the sutras. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't actually it's, it's not really flowing. I mean, it does follow a a step-by-step process, but it's, it is stilted in some places. How did you guys deal with that? Yeah, I think like we they, went it, in the order that they, cause I know some, some commentary or some books on the sutras group them into themes to make them more, um, to make them make sense a little bit more like mm-hmm. Nikolai Brockman's, um, does that 
really beautifully. Um, So we went in the order that they're presented originally. And, you know, we tried to make sense of it in our commentary, the way that it made sense to us. So once you do think, once you do realize where they're going and what they're doing, it makes sense, right? Like, here's what yoga is. Here's what yoga is. Here's what the promise of yoga is. Once you achieve yoga, here are all the things we humans do to like get in the way of that and to cause problems. And now here's the the eightfold path to actually, because yoga is both the means and the end, right? Mm-hmm. The goal and the practice. And so here's the the eightfold path to actually achieve that. Um, and here. Are, and then here are some more of the results of what's going to happen when you do that. So I think it does make sense. Um, and I think we tried to kind of outline that for readers in the introduction to the different mm-hmm. sections. Um, do you have a, uh, well, let's see this. Uh, how's your own uh, spiritual yoga practice? Like, better. Yeah, better. <laughs> I, I'm one of those yogis who... I came to it for the physical practice and I Shavasana was like an absolute nightmare for me. Yeah. It's still my hardest pose. Um, but at least now I understand and appreciate what why it's there and mm-hmm. what it's for and that I need it and the fact that it is my hardest pose means I need more of it than I probably ever give myself. Um but I don't I don't see my yoga practice as a physical practice anymore. I see it as a spiritual practice. And, you know, I grew up um, in a Catholic family and I am not a practicing Catholic anymore. And when I started to make that transition, my husband and I would have these conversations and I said, but going to yoga is kind of like church for me. And he, he, it took him a little while to get where I was going mm-hmm. with that. And, and now I can say it is like, I'm not a religious person, but I am a spiritual person. And yoga is part, a big part, not the only part, but a big part of my spiritual practice. Yeah. I think one of the things that, um, draws people to yoga and definitely draw drew me to yoga is it is a spiritual practice. It doesn't include a whole lot of dogma. And right. so that's that's what I would consider to be a religion would be how much dogma is there in the in the in the practice and for I think we've seen what you know religion and its dogmas have done to right. society and the world over the last two thousand three thousand years and for me like it's just not right it's not productive to me sure um, but spiritual practice certainly is. Well, and um, I, think and I don't think you beauty. need to, yeah, I don't think you need to follow rules to be spiritual, you know? No. And I think that's the beauty of yoga and certainly of, for me, of the sutras is you don't have to have practice any faith or you can, pra- like you can be a sure. Catholic and read the sutras and get something out of that, right? It's not going to make you Buddhist or Hindu. It's because it's so non-dogmatic, yeah. um, you, you really can yeah, I think I think one of the first um, the first yogis that came to the United States, uh, you read their writings, um, like Vivekananda, for example, mm-hmm. and he mentions Christianity and Jesus a lot of times in his writings, mm-hmm. and he goes at lengths, um, pains at lengths to, to basically say that uh, not only does this not conflict with what your views are, it actually will strengthen your views. Mm-hmm. So that if you if you read the sutras, a lot of that language. If you if you apply that to your relationship with Christ or with God or with Allah Absolutely. or whoever, 
you would your that faith would become stronger. It wouldn't become weaker. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I've always loved that about the sutras. Is yeah. it, it is like that. And and you know, I I, I don't want to seem to suggest that like dogma is 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 bad. It's just not for me. Right. Um, and I don't want to suggest that uh, rules are bad either. Uh, because yoga, if anything, is certainly about uh, discipline mm-hmm. um, and disciplining your mind. So this isn't like saying, okay, it's just a free for all and like believe what you want to believe. <laughs> like it's not like that's not what I'm saying at all. Right. I'm saying that um, that the dogma is imposed by this, you know, hierarchy, this male-dominated hierarchy that's you know for two thousand years warped the traditional messages of their founders right. into this point where it's totally unrecognizable to the people who created the religion in the first place. Right. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite sutra that you like? I have several. Oh, um, one it. of my favorites is um, is about cultivating the opposite. And I like that one because I think it is immediately actionable out in the real world. Um, so in in that one, in cultivating the opposite, what I love about that, the way that we talk about it is um, the... Uh, I'm sure people know the psychology experiment where I tell you, you can't think about a white bear. And of course, (laughs) all you can think about now is the white bear. And the only way to not think about the white bear is to think about something completely different. That's the only way to get the right bear out of your head. And that's how our brains work with emotions and feelings too, right? You're not going to get the negative. You're not going to just banish the negative from your brain, you have to replace it with something else. And so one of the exercises, the exercise for that particular sutra um, or for our commentary is to think about someone who drives you crazy or annoys mm-hmm. you. And then to think about something good that that person has brought into your life. And then when you have to deal with that person to think about that good thing and that hopefully it can let you approach that with a little bit more compassion and kindness and understanding and mm-hmm. at the very least less frustration and people always say oh my god I can't think of anything good about this particular person and so I just will say it's an ongoing practice <laughs> and um, start with someone who only annoys you well a little bit and then maybe work up to somebody who annoys you a little bit more mm-hmm. and then tackle the really challenging person in your life but I like that because there's an immediate takeaway um, that you can do and you can go out into the world and and change your approach. Um, I also, I I really appreciate, um, I think, how much thinking about gratitude um, comes up for me in the sutras as a, as a Mm -hmm. solution. I mean, no, Patanjali doesn't say anything about, you know, keep a gratitude journal at all. But I think when you're trying to cultivate a feeling of abundance or contentment um, that gratitude's really helpful with that. And so we, in our house, we have a very strong gratitude practice. We don't say bedtime prayers. We say bedtime gratitudes. Mm-hmm. We, um, we don't say grace before dinner, but we say every night, thank you for all the people who brought the food from the ground to the plate. And that, so I think having a consistent gratitude practice is another one that I really yeah, like. Sure. Yeah. If you, uh, I'm fond of telling this to my yoga students all the time is that you really think hardly about it or hard about it. 
there are a lot more things uh, that you are you can be grateful for than things that you wish you had. Right. Just take some time to think about it. Right. Um. So one of my favorite passages is the um, is the passage about uh, how to maintain your equilibrium or how to maintain your peace of mind and treating the you know the people be happy for the people that are happy mm-hmm. be compassionate for people that are sad mm-hmm. be joyful for the people who are virtuous and at least in my my reading of it I like your reading of it too um, uh, disregard the wicked or mm-hmm. um, try not to let them bother you yeah uh, I find that to be very practical advice in a lot of different ways right um, and I think it was the I think it's actually the Satchitananda version that talks about why you disregard the wicked in the way that you do um, and I think I think it's his version I'm, I'm not sure but it basically says, they say, uh, when you try to, when somebody's wicked or somebody's acting like a jerk, um, engaging with them and trying to get them not to be a jerk is just going to make them be a jerk even more. Right. So they have to change themselves. You can't change them. So by disregarding them, you you give them the chance to change themselves and therefore maintain your own peace of mind, which I really love. Yeah. Like. That's great. I really love that. Um, this must have been so much fun to write, like. I can imagine. It was. Well, especially because I'm working with my friend, right? Yeah. So, you know, we'd get together and there'd be, we'd have a cup of coffee and catch each other up on lives and, and then dive in. And, you know, we were doing the work that we're asking readers to do with it. And we were talking about some really personal things. So that was really nice too. Um, and then at the end, especially when we, um, when we were wrapping up different edits, um, there was always a glass of wine. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> At the end of the day. So this is the this is your this is the your advice for the exercise restraint towards the wicked, which yeah. I really love too. When someone's behavior goes against our values and beliefs, or beliefs, it's natural to defend them, easy to judge, preach, and even become angry. Often, this just creates further conflict. Classically, the sutra is translated as indifference or disregard, but that could could imply we ignore injustice, corruption, and dishonesty. The sutra isn't suggesting we don't take action, but tells us how to act with restraint and equanimity. It's reminding us to engage in a way that is nonviolent, non-harmful. It's reminding us to respond from a place of love and shared divinity. Very nice. Thank you. Yeah, I really like that. Because it does, I mean, it, it's, it is sort of human nature in a lot of ways to respond um, reactively. Right. In, in just about every instance. Uh, and you know, there's been reams of books written about, you know, why right. we reacted the way we did when we lived on the Savannah, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in the modern world, we're surrounded by so much stimuli that we're constantly reacting to just about everything. I mean, every second is a reaction to something else. Right. Um, and you can easily go through life, just be reactive, 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 reactive. And you, and most people are that way. And when I see people like that, to my mind, they're the ones that suffer the most. Mm-hmm. Like so when you see someone so reactive, it's just like they're suffering. Like right. most people want to say like, oh, they're just a jerk or oh, they're this or that. But you're missing the point, which is like actually you're actually they're going through a lot. Yeah. And like so being compassionate towards them, you know, helps a lot more then, than just the labeling. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, it's important to remember that there's nothing in yoga that says we should be dispassionate or turn a blind eye to the injustices in the world. Mm -hmm. But what I do think they're saying is how we 
navigate that, how we act needs to come from a place that is nonviolent, that is honest, that is, I like, I like the word equanimity, that Mm -hmm. there's some balance in that. Um, It should be thoughtful and measured and come from a place of love. Yeah. That's not to say, okay, this horrible thing is happening in the world and so what? So what? Right. Yeah. Right. No, I think that's, that's exactly it. Um, I have a lot of yoga students ask me that they're, they're kind of, when I talk about it sort of is the similar to, um, uh, non-attachment. Mm-hmm. Um, and they constantly say, well, um, you know, if I'm not attached, like then I, then I don't care. Right. Or, and it's, and it's not, we're not saying that at all. Right. We're saying that if you really care, being a non-attached will lead you to a quicker resolution or answer. And when you are attached, all you're doing is aggravating yourself and the situation. Right. I mean, you it's know. just, it's the difference of, can you approach it with an open mind Yeah. that maybe the way you're looking at it or the way you think the problem should be solved, you can't be attached to that part of it. Um, and if you approach it with an open mind, then you're going to figure out a solution much faster. Yeah. Then rather than obsessing about it and like, like yeah, clinging to some idea of how mm-hmm. it should be. Right. Mm-hmm. How did you guys approach the, the last section of the sutras when it gets like really weird? Right. <laughs> um, so we didn't. <laughs> That's the short answer. Um, so we talked about it. We talk about it in our intro um, in terms of what the promise of yoga is. And we don't offer commentary or prompts for that the fourth book of the sutras um, for a couple of reasons. It is a little out there. Um, it's, but at the same time, Amy and I have not achieved that state of enlightenment. So <laughs> where you're able to lift an elephant, right? Yes. <laughs> so we don't know. Maybe, maybe what is promised is right. actually true. Um, but not having achieved that level of enlightenment, uh, we didn't really feel like we could comment on it appropriately. Um, but we also really wanted this to be about the, the practices and the, and the work that you can do to get there rather than what happens when you get there. So we actually end, um, we end the sutras after, um, the eighth limb. So I think like three Mm -hmm. sutras into book three. Yeah. So it's the work. That's what you're doing. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. And I love that because um, we live in a society where everybody loves to talk about things that they know nothing about. Right. Right. Well. So opinions, opinions are just everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. So if I ever, if Amy or I ever reach that state of enlightenment, we can. Another book. We can do the second part of it. And who knows, maybe 2000 years ago, people did lift elephants and we just can't do it today. Right. Who Maybe elephants weren't. Right. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it it could conceivably also require the same amount of strength for a person from 2000 years ago to to come to our society um, and not be able to uh, restrain themselves from going into a Taco Bell and eating food. Sure. Whereas you and I would be considered, that's fine. We can do that. We We have that that strength. Yes. So. There's that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and the way we kind of define it too is um, if you, if you believe, First of all, we don't know, right? But if if you believe that, um, it's easy to dismiss all of the other stuff 
as kind of woo-woo too. And I think, I think what they're saying is that when you achieve this state, you're limitless. Your, your potential is limitless. So maybe you can lift an elephant. Right. I mean, maybe. But I think if we, if we take it that literally we're missing the greater point, which is when you do this work, when you get to this state, you're going to know your true self in a way that lets you live a life of ease, not easily, but live a life of ease and purpose. And you're really living your potential at that point. Yeah, no, that's right. And where, which you could, maybe if you look at it like hyperbole almost mm -hmm. where you feel like you could do that. Right. But maybe more importantly, why would you ever want to lift an elephant? If you are, if you already felt strong enough, like you could, why would you want to? Why would you want to? Sure. Yeah. I think that's, (laughs) I think that's beautiful too. Um, so how do you, so are you, do you, do you teach it all in Wisconsin when you're up out there? Very rarely. I'll sub occasionally. Um, I keep saying I, I do, I really do miss teaching, um, and teaching consistently. My schedule has not allowed for that. I travel so much, um, both coming back to DC for past tense and then for work that that doesn't really feel very fair to students or a studio owner. Mm -hmm. Um, but I keep saying as soon as my schedule lightens up, I'm going to start teaching regularly. And then I jam pack my schedule yeah. with something else. You're an addict. Yeah, I am. <laughs> totally am. Yeah. It's okay. The best kind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think I'm going to get on some sub lists so I can be teaching more consistently, but I don't think, I don't think it's fair to a yeah. studio owner to have a regular class right now. Do you have, do you find yourself, are you the type of person who can be like traveling and just like whip out your yoga mat and they, in a hotel room and just like do your 45 minutes of asana. No, I have an absolute horrible home practice. Uh, but the first thing I do when I travel is find a yoga studio for a couple of reasons. I think from a traveling perspective, it gives you insight into a community. Um, usually, um, I end up chit chatting with the students there. I get great recommendations for things to do. I was Mm -hmm. in Tucson, and had a whole day planned and then talking to these students outside of class, I completely changed what I was going to do. And I had this amazing day and went hiking up to this mountain. It was great. Um, so I get great travel tips from yoga students. Mm-hmm. So, and it also, um, de-kinks my body after having sat in a plane or a train or a car for a long. So it's, it's the first, I, I find a studio right away. Um, I love practicing in other cities but, um, no, I don't have a great home practice and I actually have, um, I have figured out why, um, there's a variety of reasons, but what it comes down to is that I get really distracted by my computer or the laundry mm-hmm. or whatever else needs to get done. And I realize that's really tied up in my identity and ego so this is like a cliche I need to work with. Yeah, I was about to say, maybe you need a home practice yeah. more than anything else. Yeah. Um, and and the fact that I need to, the, the best way for me to eliminate that roadblock is to practice at a studio where I'm not distracted. 
Um, when I'm teaching, I run through my sequences at home. I have a subscription to yogadownload.com. Mm-hmm. And so I do practice at home. Um, I just, I'm not, I'm not great at it. It's not my strong point. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I don't, I don't sit at home and do sun salutations like no. in the morning when I get up, but I, I do, I have a yin practice, my mm-hmm. own practice, a yin practice. So yeah. that's for a lot of people, they have a meditation practice. Mm-hmm. That's my meditation practice. I find it very difficult for me to just sit cross-legged and meditate. Yeah. Um, but I find it, uh, much more rewarding and beneficial if I can be in a restorative yoga pose, mm-hmm. um, and connect with my body that way mm-hmm. um that takes my mind off everything else yeah um what is uh have you done a lot of yoga you also live you also have a place in switzerland yeah right we there? lived in switzerland for three years i did teach there yeah and i would in teach english in english in I a guess. mix of french and english wow um i think i could still do the sun salutations in french in french uh, <laughs> and i had uh we lived in lausanne um which is on lake geneva mm-hmm. it's a very international city um so most people spoke english or would deal with my in the beginning bad french and then it got better and one of the regulars in my class um taught english um and so she would or she taught french and so two english speakers and so she would give me a couple phrases to work on each week, or she'd tell me if I said something wrong. And, um, you know, thankfully I could just say chaturanga and right. everybody would work it out. <laughs> I don't know any, I don't know any students that, that offer yoga classes in French. I do know there's a sizable French population in DC and mm-hmm. I'm willing to bet if a studio had a class of French, class people of would French. go. <laughs> they, they, they would come. I don't know um, if my, I'd have to practice. Yes, exactly. I do have a couple of books at home, um, yoga books in French that I bought over there. Um, so we'll see. What, so what does a yoga book like, look like in French? I mean, is it like, like people like French yogis writing books? Um, this, the, the two that I have, yes, I'm sure they're French yogis writing books. The two that I have are asana books, which is why I got them was so I could start to learn how to cue and say things properly in French. Um, but they're cartoon draw, not cartoon drawings, but they're illustrations mm-hmm. rather than people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rather than photos. Exactly. Yeah. Um, any plans to open a second studio? No. Just going <laughs> to keep past tense. Yes. One's um, enough. One is enough. Um, the intent was always a small community studio. Um, I, we need more space. I wish we had a bigger space. Um, but that's not happening anytime soon. So we'll just burst at the seams for a little while longer. Yeah, of course. Those, those, are, those are the best classes for yeah. me are the ones where people are mat to mat. Right. You know, I that's think where so. I think energy. the energy is amazing. Right. Yeah. Um, any other, um, like, Books, websites, like resources that you really turn to that um, that inspire you about yoga, or that you like to hmm. that you like to do. I mean, obviously for for me, I, I always pick up a copy of the Yoga Sutras, or I'll pick up a copy of the Gita, or uh, something like that. But uh, anything that you really usually turn to. You mentioned the yoga the uh, yoga website that you do yoga from. Yeah, so yeah. it's called Yoga Download, and it's a subscription based. Um, it's a subscription based and it's mostly asana classes, or at least that's what I do with Mm it. Um, I have a ton of meditation books now because I Mm. am really working on that. That's something I'm going to have to work on. Um, 
so I have a lot of those. I really, we were, our publisher was Shambhala Publications, and they are this really beautiful, independent um, publishing house that focuses on um, meditation and philosophy and yoga. And um, I have a lot of their books now. Um, so I tend to go to their website when I'm looking for things mm-hmm. or want something. And, for yoga related and then I I'm a total podcast junkie so I listen to um, yoga land and um, Rosie Acosta's radically loved and MB Ohm, mm-hmm. which I think is um, really good from a business perspective um, those are the straight yoga ones that I listen to and then I have like a ton of health and news ones I listen to and right um, and then there's some newsletters I really like that are not yoga specific, but always seem to be touching on things that are very related. The, the one I love is called Further, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, he. What's that? It's a it's a mix about it's a weekly newsletter, and it links to really interesting articles about how to take your life further in mm-hmm. some way. So it's often growth travel health it can be finances um but it's usually interesting research or studies so i like that one a lot yeah they're all great yeah um so you got um let's see you got uh yeah you got a continuing ed module coming up in november we do tell us about all the specials at uh yeah at the studio yeah at the studio we have a foam rolling our foam rolling and, and yoga teacher training. It's a six hour oh. continuing ed course. Um, so it'll go over um, the self myofascial release and how to incorporate that into a, a yoga studio. Um, so you could do, you could certainly come out and teach a straight up foam rolling class. Um, you could teach the way we do, which is a, a mix that includes postures mm-hmm. and foam rolling. Um, or you could just, you know, roll yourself out and feel better. <laughs> I know. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, very cool. Um, any teacher trainings coming up that you guys are doing? We just started, um, just started our 200 hour. Mm-hmm. Um, we keep ours. It's, it's small. We take 12 students, mm-hmm. um, intentionally. We want it to be intimate. We didn't have a teacher training until about three years ago. Um, and, we also, as part of our teacher training, you get included in the price as a year membership to the studio. So um, it tends to fill up really fast. Yeah, I bet. Which is great. That's cool. Yeah. Who's leading that for you guys? Alicia Moyer. Oh, man. Yeah. They're I mean, lucky. she's fantastic. That's great. Yeah. I'm hoping to get her on the show soon. Yes. Um, get her. Yeah. She's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. We all love her. Um, okay. Well, thank you for coming in. Thank you That's so much joy. for having me. This was yeah, great. Absolutely. Um, and the book is Living the Sutras, A Guide to Yoga Wisdom Beyond the Mat by Kelly DiNardo and Amy Pierce Hayden. Really good book. Um, pick it up even if you have nine copies of the Yoga Sutras. <laughs> you can never you can have always, too you many. You can never have too many. No. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, until next time, I'm Chris Parkinson, your host at the DC Yoga Podcast. Um, any questions or comments, you can reach me at DC Yoga Podcast at gmail.com and uh, take care everybody.